All right, I am going to try something a little different today. I'm going to try doing the uh, the intro during the actual recording. So, um, all right, guys, welcome back. Never mind. <laughs> all right, folks, welcome back to the virtual world. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty, and today I'm being joined by Jay Helton and our special guest, Tim McNamara, the author of Rust in Action. How's it going, Tim? Hey, I'm very good. Thanks, uh, Ty. It's... Um... It's kind of weird being on the wrong side of the world because it's obviously, we're just coming out of winter. It's early spring. And so my hands are freezing in my little middle office, but I'm otherwise, I'm perfectly fine. Yeah, I think as well, it, it was a little chaotic trying to uh, plan the actual interview. I think uh, the first time we had, we had like just a normal scheduling issue. And the second time I was three hours early. Because I, I yeah, sorry about about like time zones. You know, we're in New Zealand, right? So I kind of live in the future, um, and uh, but daylight savings always throws me out because uh, I have this kind of mental idea that uh, if you're based on the west coast in the states, you are about five or six hours ahead of me, but the day prior. Uh, so I can normally kind of judge things that way but uh yeah sometimes it, it it's 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 kind of it's crazy <laughs> so thanks very much for your perseverance it's really nice to be on the show yeah no worries yeah honestly every time i think about the time zone in new zealand it blows my mind how far ahead you guys are um right there's actually a country zealand. uh that's that's that that shifted on the other side of the, <laughs> the time zone. they're actually 13 hours ahead from utc uh which is um yeah um, I think Western Samoa also changed, which, uh, yeah, from like being a day behind us to on the same day. Uh, and so, uh, you have the, you have effectively two hours, oh, sorry, two days difference at sometimes. Um, it's always funny when New Year's comes away, like, so New Year's Eve, like we have our midnight, the start of the year. And then nearly a day later people are having their midnight celebrations and it's like i'm going back to sleep on the next day here that's wild yeah new zealand is is kind of interesting to me um i kind of want to talk a little bit about how you feel about living there and, and whether or not you lived there you know your entire life or if you moved there i read recently that the leader of the country who is a, a woman i think they call it the prime minister in new zealand um and I read that she's got sort of raving reviews. People seem to really love her. She seems to be doing a great job. And also, they it seems like a lot of companies are actually pushing for bringing over software engineering talent from the yeah, States. Yeah, honestly, if you want to come, we'll have you. <laughs> that's that's how it is, too. There's even a website that the, the New Zealand government set up that's like, yes, if you software at all, we will get you a job. Yeah, and I okay, okay, right. So there's, there's there's quite a lot on that question. I'm more than happy to chat about about the country. Uh, and so I guess I'll start with the interesting stuff for people that that are thinking, oh my god, the whole world is burning. <laughs> um, there's a pandemic everywhere. I'd like to go somewhere that is virus free. Um, at the moment, right now, the border is closed. Like it's illegal for anyone who is not a New Zealand citizen or permanent resident to fly here. So. As of August 2020, the border is shut. Now, that will not be the case forever. Uh, there are, um, the software industry here is uh, kind of, it, it's it's based around probably, I would say, you'd probably have 
you know, there's a, uh, let's say 40% Java, 40% to C sharp. And then there's kind of this, like, there are the other categories. <laughs> and I guess Python and kind of Django stuff would probably fill up the rest, the rest of that. And then there's kind of fraction of like some interesting things as well. So the, the companies that tend to, so the most of the, the, the companies that tend to hire a lot of software developers tend to be growing here. So they're not internationally big names. I think probably the biggest would be Zero, which is spelled X-E-R-O. And they're not very large in the States, but they're kind of a competitor, competitor to Intuit, I'd say. Or at least they're kind of an, like a small business accounting system. And uh, the other side of it would be larger multinationals. So that would be like HPE or IBM or, you know, pick your large company. And they'll kind of have primarily a sales focus in New Zealand. And that's particularly into government. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so primarily into government. Uh, and then they'll kind of organically grow an engineering base as well. Uh, with the change in dynamics in 2020, you also have companies that are trying to figure out um, how you can, uh, like, how you can operate in this this COVID world. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is an idea that, well, you spend uh, a couple of weeks in managed isolation. So if you come through the border, they actually put you up in a hotel, and they will not let you leave your room basically for two weeks. Uh, and you get a, once you get a couple of clean tests, you do a test at, at day three and a test, at, I think at day 15. And once they both come through negative, you're allowed in, in, uh, and then, so there's an idea that maybe New Zealand might be a cool place to hang out for about six months and bring a bunch of international teams. Uh, I know that AWS is signing up here. Microsoft is, uh, has a presence again it's mostly mostly sales but also increasing the engineering uh azure has got a local outfit based in auckland actually they're starting an availability zone here as well so yeah in terms of <laughs> in terms of the engineering side there's, there's quite a lot of upside uh as long as yeah as, as long as the situation here doesn't deteriorate in terms of the virus as well so uh, there was a lot of press about, about, I'd say, a week and a half ago with Donald Trump kind of declaring, oh, New Zealand, it's all over. <laughs> like, yeah, the nine cases. Right, right, these nine cases. Uh, yeah, it was one cluster. So it looks like it's they haven't figured out exactly how, uh, how the virus got back into the country. But someone at a, uh, a plant that processes, like it's a cold store, that processes imported, imported goods primarily from Australia. And one of their workers contracted the virus and uh, their family members also contracted. So ended up going to hospital and basically the whole of the largest city in the country was shut down pretty much completely within, I think, about six hours <laughs> of this test turning positive. And, uh, and so it looks like we've prevented a second wave. Now, <laughs> I'm probably going to eat my words in about, you know, 10 days time. Uh, we're the only country really, well, no, that's not fair to, um, to others as well. But preventing the second wave um, looks likely. 
and but it's a real challenge because now the political situ- situation is changing. Back in April, when we had our first kind of major lockdown, uh, the public was fully behind our Prime Minister, Justin Dardin. By the way, the term Prime Minister is... Uh, it, I, uh, just a tiny bit on sort of the constitutional history of, of the British Commonwealth. Uh, so Commonwealth countries have a prime minister. They don't have a president. The head of state is the queen and she performs ceremonial functions and she has a, uh, a local representative who actually, you know, in the States, the president will sign off all of the laws that get passed in the Senate. But we have um, the queen's signature on all of our, of our laws legally like ceremonially uh she has the uh, royal prerogative of 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 royal assent to legislation now in practice uh she always acts on the advice you know it's (laughs) it's termed in these very very friendly terms acts on the advice of the prime minister and so what that means in practice is that the prime minister here is uh effectively like well no not effectively is completely in charge except for some very ceremonial functions uh we have a very strong constitutional um we have a very constitutional um system that works really well um that's bounded in a liberal democracy i mean interestingly from new zealand's point of view we have an unwritten constitution so there's some uh we're one of the i think two or three countries in the world that haven't actually got a a formal constitution uh but but yeah i mean i mean the system works really well we have the we are ranked number one for uh the ability to do business here and so that's setting up a company or uh growing one we have the uh least corruption or at least the the lowest perceived level of corruption inside uh, every country in the world and so we, we rank really highly in these transparency rankings as well so as yeah, as well as the COVID situation, there are some sort of genuinely good reasons for establishing New, like New Zealand as a base or at least a hub, uh, if you're a larger larger enterprise. And have you have you lived there since you were born, or did you move there? Oh right, so I uh, I grew up here, um, and I did a student exchange to Germany. I lived in Germany for just under a year uh, as a high school student. And I had always had this intention <laughs> that once I kind of hit, uh, once I kind of hit adulthood, I would probably go back overseas. Kind of like it's really, really, it's super common for New Zealanders to do this OE, which is kind of the overseas experience. It's kind of you spend, you know, maybe two or three years overseas. Um, it's really common here for uh, university graduates to kind of explore the world a bit and come home. I, due to student loan pressure and like never quite having enough money, <laughs> was never able to kind of refly out. Um, interestingly, though, I've kind of picked up the sweet gig at Canonical, where uh, I'm a remote worker for a UK-based company, and we, until you know earlier this year, Canonical, company... like the uh, the organization that does Ubuntu stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly that one, and uh, uh, so. They bring about they bring all of their engineers together twice a year for a week long sprint, and I was also introduced to the kind of the management level meetings as well. So that's kind of quarterly, 
And typically you kind of, they alternate between the US or North America and Europe. So I've had several trips back <laughs> to Europe since I've been there. Uh, yeah. So primarily I have spent my time uh, in the Antipodes, but, uh, but, but it's not, it's not been exclusive. Um, I still, I still hold on to a little bit of, of my German language. <laughs> I'm definitely not as fluent as I used to be though. Would, would it be jarring to, at this point, ask you what your favorite color is? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I've got a really, dear. no, it, no, it's not jarring. My favorite color right now is, uh, like silver. Actually, it's, uh, and it's going to, I was trying to, when I was a child, I tried to think of a color that no one else really picked as their favorite color, kind of like the underdog color. And actually, you know what? Silver has got a lot of things going for it. You know, it's, <laughs> as far as colors go, it's pretty versatile. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so I, I go, I, yeah, it's also one of the best Pokemon games out there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> The whole Pokemon thing has been hilarious how it, uh, you know, Pokemon Go had this massive resurgence, you know, and it was just you know, the flash in the pan for like eight weeks where the whole world was doing it. And then we, <laughs> I was like, no way. But um, I still got my account. I'm pretty sure uh, my Pokemon Go, I still, I still, you know, smash a few gems whenever I can. Yeah, yeah. silver is not too bad either. I make it a habit of of doing like a hardcore judgment of, of people based on their favorite colors. So it's certainly, uh, I think it's like A tier. It's not S tier for me, but but at least it's not yellow. Right. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Stephen Beals. Don't even, do not hand him a banana. Actually, <laughs> I love bananas. Okay, bananas are awesome. The story of the banana is also uh it's also fascinating, by the way, if you're in, you know, not just the kind of the U.S. kind of like taking over South America, you know, Central American republics and, you know, we can we can look past that. But actually, um, they uh, <laughs> sorry, that was supposed to be a joke, but <laughs> you guys um, I'll say it was lost in translation. Right. OK. Uh, the from, um, from the future. I mean, uh -huh. there was also a. Uh, like the variety, the fact that every single banana is a clone is crazy to me. Um, and they can't create new varieties. Well, at least it's really, really hard to. And the reason why all the old cartoons, you you know, used to kind of like put a banana peel on the ground and someone would slip over. And it turns out that the variety of bananas that they used to eat was much more slippery and uh so that's why that that gag worked whereas now banana peels aren't as slippery as they used to be but sadly for us the bananas that they used to use have all been hit by this terrible fungus that uh means that you know we we, we, we get stuck with the sucky ones <laughs> um that aren't as tasty and uh aren't you know definitely not as good for for uh your, your kind of gag um uses Touche, yeah. Um, I am a huge fan of bananas. I but the color yellow itself, I feel is trash. And honestly, I take offense to the to the banana thing too because bananas are all kind of green, right? They're green and uh -huh. then they become yellow. So right, right, I think right. that's the that's the loophole. That's where it gets me back on its team. 
Uh-huh. The green and, brings back some respect. So, so sure. to segue back to Pokemon, did you guys watch the uh, closing keynote for RustConf with uh, Sean Griffin? I have not yet. It's a good I, one. I, I, I highly recommend I, it. Yeah, I, I, I got, I, I had it there. I was watching the first couple of minutes, and I was like, look, I, I want to watch this, and I hit, I've got to go. Like, I put, got on save for later, but I haven't finished it. So, um. But yeah, he, he definitely starts off with this kind of, with this Pokemon glitch. And I was like, what a cool little, uh, like little, little story or anecdote. Yeah, he dives into the, the missing no uh, glitch from the original Pokemon games. And he, he, oh, that's he, awesome. does, he does like a really awesome uh, presentation with it as well. He's like uh, in costume and yeah, uh, it was a really good, really good one. I, I was pleasantly surprised by it. Your mic sounds really good. Did you get something new since last time? No, this is oh. the same setup. Thank you, That's though. Cool. <laughs> I love the way that your mic sounds. <laughs> I've worked very hard on it. Okay, so uh, I'll let I'll let uh, Jay take this next question since uh, it's kind of his. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so first off, I wanted to let you know that I bought your book and I'm Holy. going through it and I'm loving it. Uh, nice, but it certainly has allowed me to want to ask you questions which is uh-huh. one big reason why why i'm here so the first thing that i, I do actually is, quick sec quick uh quick thing there oh, since, on, since we're talking about the, the book pass the baton well since we're talking about the book man let's i just want to shout out i have five copies of the book i have codes uh for manning's website that they've given me uh from their their podcast representative and so you can use any of those codes to get a free copy of rust in action i think it does have a deadline on it i didn't realize that at first especially with the element action books but i think it does have like a month or two deadline on it i can't extend that for a little bit but not much so definitely if you're listening to the podcast and you want a copy of the book reach out to me on twitter at tytr underscore dev for a free copy of the book uh and back to jay yeah so so i'm going through this book and the way that you're kind of uh, going back and forth between teaching Rust, but then also covering uh, like pretty uh, like b- I don't know basic topics or like um, general introductions to like what programming is. Uh, I found it uh, really interesting. I haven't quite seen that bridge before, uh, and it, and it got me thinking like how did you get into programming? Uh, like what what's kind of your technical background? Uh, what technologies have you worked with the most? Yeah. Okay. So this is like. If I can kind of even add to uh, quite a add to that as well, some of the re- anonymous reviewers had uh, like so Manning. By the way, whenever an author tries to get a manuscript through the door, uh, they give about thirty people copies at one third, two thirds, and three thirds of the way through, and so about fifty people have provided. Um, kind of this anonymous feedback, uh, pretty thorough, actually. And one of the recurring comments is like, wow, you're definitely an expert in systems programming or definitely an expert in Rust. And I was like, really? Uh, Because when I started this gig, you know, which, you know, I was the audience for my book. I wanted to learn about these topics about how do I like how does what does the heap actually mean how what does it mean when I uh like how are numbers represented inside a computer what is NTP like how is it that computers can communicate across the internet and yet somehow synchronize on the time like how are even what does time mean to a computer you know these kinds of questions that feel 
I, I basically used the book as an excuse to kind of totally nerd out <laughs> and teach myself. Now, uh, to kind of go back to your question, what is my technical background? So uh, if you look me up on LinkedIn, you'll notice that there's like no Stanford there. There's no like, uh, there's no computer science degree even. I have a master's in public policy, which uh, sounds ridiculous until you kind of know that I'm from the capital city of my country. I uh, did really well in kind of uh, liberal arts topics and uh, the kind of classic thing to do if you're in my town is to become kind of a policy wonk. And uh, along, so I got started with tech in a serious way when I worked at our emergency management agency. Uh, <laughs> for I was like an overeager volunteer when I was a t- uh, uh, when I was a teenager and sort of into my early twenties, and so I was really into. Uh, uh, I was both in, in our reserve forces um, from like a humanitarian point of view, and also uh, really into in univ- um, urban search and rescue, which is when firefighters learn how to dig into rubble to rescue people. So that was kind of my jam, and uh, I I scored this my first real job at um, at our emergency management agency actually developing the training materials for these teams of uh, kind of community volunteers so kind of the entry level stuff rather than build going into collapsed buildings instead you're kind of triaging where the more advanced teams should kind of focus their efforts and so forth now one of the things that is weird about emergency management is that it's never important until it's extremely important. And so it's kind of one of these functions in government that everyone ignores and the communication lines between different agencies and like different levels of government between kind of local or like community or I'd say city level or district all the way up to kind of our equivalent of maybe a federal or state kind of government um, and then international, it's really fragmented. And so I actually got involved learning uh, it, right about the time it was um, the Indian Ocean tsunami came out and there was a software project that emerged from it to increase coordination between differing agencies, this thing called the Sahana Disaster Management System. And I learned to code so <laughs> with this kind of like completely ideological, oh, sorry, uh, is ideological the right word? Um, like completely idealistic vision of being able to enable every agency to communicate with each other using free and open source software. And <laughs> and the only way that I was going to be able to convince people that they should take on this tool was to improve it for New Zealand's conditions, which meant that I needed to improve the documentation and be able to improve the software. And so I learned myself how to code. And uh, and and that was that was that <laughs> about 15 16 years ago now uh and so from there i moved into um more of a uh so it really i after that i spent a bunch of time kind of flapping around inside government i fell out of um the wrong side of two um restructures um happened you know i, got, I kind of got my redundant twice in a row and so I was like, you know what, government, I'm just going to leave you. <laughs> you can do your own thing. You can be you. And I'm going to go make a career of myself. I'm really good at this technology thing. I'm going to give it a go. And so I ended up getting a um, 
kind of building a career as a software developer and actually mostly a data scientist uh, with kind of a software angle. So uh, I have focused primarily on natural language processing, but itself came out of humanitarian kind of interest. So one of the problems with uh, with disaster response is that there's this massive flood or influx of information. And I, uh, in about 2020, 20, there was a very large earthquake in New Zealand in, in February 2010. I coordinated a group of volunteers to stand up an instance of a software solution. And we uh, were able to kind of suck in about 500,000 uh, social media messages and kind of create this real online on sort of real-time map. And yeah, from there, from there, I then, my, my online profile grew quite substantially, you know, <laughs> probably like 600 Twitter followers or something. And uh, I joined New Zealand's uh, supercomputing center as their outreach and training coordinator. So my job was to teach scientists how to use supercomputers. And that was a bit of a bridge to climb, or was that the that's completely mucking up, my, mucking up my metaphors a bit? Girl, there was a bit hey, you're, you're from uh, a different part of the country. We're not going to just uh, just say, hey, that's not a phrase. We don't know. Just, <laughs> you can use phrases you want. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, so, different so, part so, of the country. That, 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 um, yes. that was a really fun experience and uh, i learned a lot but also was i really enjoyed teaching and uh parallel computing by the way is and using hundreds of cores is a very different discipline to what most scientific or academic researchers are used to they typically throw in into computing in grad school and then just kind of really left to their own devices at their phd and we could provide some support there. Uh, by that stage, I was also kind of really contributing to the open source community. So I was director of our local Python conference, uh, pretty active on mailing lists and so forth. Uh, I was just about to ask if, you, uh, if, if all this meant you've gotten really, really intimate with Python. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I I, uh, <laughs> I was on our local Python uh, committee for uh, a couple of years, I ran the local Python, uh, like the Py the local New Zealand PyCon, at least once, and I think I was on the committee a couple of times. Uh, there are a bunch of, um, yeah. So, so by this stage, I'd say that I was probably, uh, and it, I was probably one of the better Python developers uh, in the country, possibly, if I was ambitious, uh, kind of emerging on the world. Um, and I really enjoyed the, one of the things I've really appreciated about open source, just to kind of like, again, we're kind of flapping around, but that's fine. I hope that's fine anyway. <laughs> uh, one of the things I really appreciate about open source is that there's no one checking your credentials when you start. People check your credentials in a different way. They check the quality of your contributions. And so, but, uh, and so what I was able to do was contribute in my own way and, without anyone putting like holding the gate shut at the entrance and so that allowed me to kind of kind of weasel my way in without having a computer science degree uh since then i actually i want to touch on that really quick that's a that's a really great way to think about open source honestly makes me a little bit more uh 
I don't know, motivated and energized to get in there and do my own stuff. I've done a couple of things, but I really haven't emerged into the open source scene yet, which I feel guilty about most times. <laughs> well, open source is, is, is different than I think it was like even five, 10 years ago. You know, it's very commercially, it would be very strange now to think of open source for a large company as something that I didn't participate in. And whereas previously, it's always been the case that there's this been perception that projects are led by individuals who are kind of work, you know, like scurrying away at themselves, you know, with themselves. But for me, yeah, I found, um, I found this idea that there's kind of low, there's zero, well, actually, there's a knowledge barrier to entry and there's a perception barrier to entry. You know, there's this confidence that you need to generate from somewhere. You kind of need to bootstrap yourself because you're suddenly writing code or contributing a patch or writing documentation or answering a question on a main list or answering a question on Stack Overflow. Like I, f I, I found like all of those types of contributions are worthy and they're all really valuable. And so, but the problem that you face as someone who's new is that <laughs> you, uh, it, you need to put yourself in a place of vulnerability because you're exposing yourself to public shame if you get things wrong. And uh, so the, the barriers to entry exist in a different way, but there's definitely no one, there's no one who is going to say, Tim, you can't contribute this code because you haven't got the right credential. Like I, uh, and so if you can fake it, a little bit just you know the way that i the way that i get over that kind of mental barrier is by saying i don't need to be confident i just need to pretend like i am <laughs> and that's one of the things that i've uh, focused on a lot when i've been promoting my book i don't uh, i've i've always found uh, the idea of asking for money for things really challenging and uh, and especially as there are yeah that's excellent... interesting too because there's a, there are a lot of projects right now that are actually like they're openly uh, making their entire salaries off of people contributing stuff. Um, just recently, Bevy came out. I don't know if you've been following that. It's like an app and game engine for the Rust ecosystem. Yeah, um, and it's and just think, huge. Like within within about a week, yeah, it's suddenly like the number week, one thing to do. Yeah, and he, uh, I mean, within a week as well, he put out a thing and was like, "Help me pay my bills while I work on this full time." Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I, <laughs> I, I think that, you know, and also there's some of the infrastructure around that, whether it's Patreon or, you know, like, uh, or, or whatever. GitHub, whatever. Yeah, the sponsors and, and, and you know, the infrastructure is there to support that kind of, I, that, that kind of model, which is, which is really positive in a lot of ways. It has its own risks. I think that, uh, like, there was an XKCD that came out about, you know, this massive software architecture that's, you know, like being held up with this one tiny library that's maintained by somebody in some obscure place by themselves and, and their nights and weekends. Um, and lots of companies making lots of money. Uh, you know, it, it, there's definitely an imbalance. Uh, and I think, I don't think that people should necessarily feel guilty that they're not contributing to open source like just being in the bubble grows the bubble right <laughs> and so uh oh you know and about 90 percent, i'd say and you know this is kind of some 
relatively informal work that I've done as part of my participation in the New Zealand Open Source Society. So we're in sort of an advocacy group uh, for open source. And we'd estimate that about, you know, a good 90% of people have downloaded something and kind of never contributed. There might be a uh, a 10% people, you know, the, the rest of the 10% might have actually been asked, even asking a question in public is really challenging for a lot of people. And so uh, my, 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 my suggestion would be that it's okay to, my suggestion would be it's okay to start really small. And it's also okay to fake it until you make it. The confidence is... <sighs> And the the confidence is the confidence barrier is really difficult to overcome. And I, I think this is particularly interesting to Jay as well because he's he's been nerding out really really hardcore about Dino. I mean, at some point during this, he's probably even going to mention Ryan Dahl by name. <laughs> yeah, well, Dino, I, I, <laughs> come on now, that was for later, right? Right. Well, you know, and it's interesting actually what Rust has kind of been able to kind of just like. Rust has this opportunity to, I think, make hard things accessible to people. And I think Rust encourages In a weirdly you. inaccessible way. Like, <laughs> it, it makes systems engineering accessible to people who are otherwise afraid of it, but first they have to understand borrowing. Right, so right. Ship. So you're... Um, you, I think you've made a lot of really good points about the barrier of entry. Um, like, it's more intrinsic than it is extrinsic for open source um and and i am not like i i would say that i'm a a pretty good engineer i i've been doing it for long enough and but whenever i started contributing to deno i felt like an intern again i mean mm. whenever whenever you're mm. going through and you're like good first issue oh you know <laughs> this little bug this seems good and it takes you forever to do it because you don't you don't know anything and you're so nervous to actually put that out there for like yeah. the entire world to technically see mm. and on top of that the majority of open source projects that most people are going to find actually interesting also have you know 200 other really awesome mm. engineers yeah it. and you're like whoa okay what is 200 plus one well okay i'm gonna be last on the queue right <laughs> like like uh yeah i big projects scare me too and uh i think something like dino we are trying to basically fix the front end or no no that's would you say that is what they're trying to do or you know uh, fix it like a um like a a competitor to node yeah, it's yeah, a TypeScript yeah. runtime built in Rust. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I would. There's say... another caveat to that stuff too, uh -huh. because I like quick anecdote about my only open source uh, excursion. I contributed a little bit to a project called um, Towery, I, I think is how you would pronounce it. And this is a this is like a competitor to Electron. It's supposed to be a cross platform uh, thing that lets you develop desktop apps using web technologies um, and it's all built in rust and <clears throat> when i was working on that i only did a little bit of stuff with their build system mm -hmm. but their one of their main contributors was like a 15 year old that's <laughs> way better at code than me yeah. and i'm just like what uh yeah yeah i mean or at least that's the perception but i think the thing that sucks about technology and i think the thing that sucks about people that are introspective and reflective 
is that everyone feels that everyone else is better than them. It's like if you talk to anyone who, you know, let's just say, for instance, you know, forget their hiring policy and their whiteboard interviews and, and, and that junk. But let's say that, you know, Google hires the A team. So if you have got through the Google process, the hiring process, like you're on the A team, like you're really good. But almost everyone that I have heard of that's come out of that organization has felt that they are, you know, in the bottom half. <laughs> now, now, why is it that people that are so smart and, uh, and like maybe that, like, why is it that we feel and I'm going to include myself in this one as well because the external evidence suggests that I'm a really good developer and I'm a very good technical writer. People love what I do. I have people regularly sending me messages thanking me for my book. Uh, I have had a couple of people saying it's the best technical resource I've ever read in their life. Now, if you were to ask me like, what I'm good at, I would probably not even mention technology or uh, like I, uh, it's really difficult to talk about yourself positively if you're reflective. I don't know. Um, it's it's super hard, and it's like the opposite of the the uh, Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, um, well, look, no one. I think the thing with a big project, let's say you've got two hundred contributors, and it's like, well, I don't want to waste anybody else's time. Uh, so I'm not going to invest a lot of men. Like, I don't want people, like, I'm not going to write a big PR that someone needs to spend three hours reviewing because it, you know, like that's three hours that they could be spending doing something else. And, um, yeah, that, that's super tough. I think the only way to break yourself out of that mentality would be to say, you know what? They enjoy it. And you'll, the other thing is, and this is what I really like about Rust. And this is, you know, if I go, Jade, back to your first question of like, why did you do this? The reason, one of the reasons why I did this is that the Rust community is inclusive. And like, if you're participating in a Rust project, that kind of, uh, that mentality of being open and being inclusive is, uh, it does kind of permeate the rest of the Rust community. The idea that uh, you don't want to, you know it's you're you're welcome to learn here you're welcome you know you are worthy or you know you are able to contribute and i really appreciate that it for the first time in my life rust was able to teach me what a pointer is and what pointer dereference was and i was able to take the time to learn that stuff now I was a Python developer for about a decade before I touched Rust and I was always far too scared to write C extensions because if you read a C extension, like any guide to C extensions, they've kind of the first paragraph, maybe the second will be like, you know, that you should only do this if you're an expert because <laughs> you're going to like sig vault, you're going to crash, you're going to introduce a memory leak, you're going to do something, it's going to blow everything up. And I never felt like an expert. Yeah, I, I've had a lot, a little bit of that recently. I've been trying to, uh, so I've done a couple of apps that use 3DJS and other libraries to do some interesting 3D stuff on the web. And I'm currently working on some other stuff. And I think maybe like five times in the past, I've tried to get into WebGL itself, not like a wrapper library and just trying to understand the core technology. And 
yeah, like paragraph two every time that you try to get into something like this is like, oh, yeah, make sure you have your PhD in abstract <laughs> mathematics first and then you'll be yeah. good. Um, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's like, this is going to well, really like, be hard. It's optional, but, you know, if you're a physicist by trade, you might figure out the mathematics behind this stuff, right? Like, Yeah, for um, sure. And, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm... I'm really enthusiastic about rust as a community as a way of demonstrating that open source projects can be done positively so i'll give you kind of a negative experience as well because we're while we're on the topic and that is um and i maybe shouldn't single them out <laughs> but it happens to me right it's still there in public it's on the main list um i was really intrigued by erlang for a long time and i uh, tried very, very hard to learn the language uh, and not just the language, but also it's um, kind of idiomatic uh, or it's idioms. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to send an email to the mailing list. And this is kind of a global one. And I was like, hi, I'm a Python developer, but I'm looking at Erlang because I want to learn about distributed systems and and making uh, and, and making use of the message passing paradigm rather than shared memory and so forth. And it's like, well, here are some impressions that I have as someone who is new to the language. You know, da, 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 da. one of the things was like, I'm finding the functional paradigm really difficult, you know. And one thing that I miss is a hash map, like a dictionary. A Python dictionary is kind of my go-to data structure and it doesn't exist in Erlang. And so if I were to make, if there was one language feature that I would love to see, um, <laughs> it would be something like that and the within i don't know how long it was but the next message that came in was like no <laughs> like you're wrong and uh it's not needed and by the way and i never sent them a message again i never i never sent another message to that mailing list i i have never unsubscribed but i've always been far too terrified <laughs> of sending them any mail because I just don't want to get flamed. I yeah, I, I have actually seen uh, and heard of similar interactions and in, uh, that are very similar to yours. Not not with the Erling uh, people or the Erling community, but in general, I've seen some very uh, like elitist attitudes towards you know somebody who's just making a suggestion or wanting to talk about something, uh, which which is always unfortunate to hear about. Um, and I guess you you kind of partially answer answered this next question uh but the next question was like why rust and how did you first get into rust uh so you so you mentioned that you really loved the community but is there is there anything else or was the community kind of like your main uh inspiration behind really diving into rust oh uh, yeah okay well um the reason why i wanted to learn rust was because i was getting to the stage with python where python wasn't quite good enough uh, I would do kind of these large data science jobs, kind of like uh, kind of ETL, which is the data pipelines, and uh, where you'd have maybe five terabytes of data. It needs to be transformed and maybe filtered or aggregated in some way, and and then I'd kind of build these machine learning models from from that, and it was just really slow, uh, and so I kind of wanted to get closer to the middle. I've always had this tinge of wonder about how it works that a source some source code could actually end up in physical like in behavior in terms of robotics like some physical movement um but also i was 
starting to really want to know how computers operated and uh r rust uh and and i i kind of played around with a couple of things because i wanted to get close to the middle i wanted to do it so i was like mucking around with go for a little bit i mucked around with nim actually uh and uh and there are a few other kind of bits and pieces tangent, as well nim is awesome i don't if you have if it you're is listening totally to this and awesome you have it, <laughs> yeah. yeah check out nim it's super cool yeah and i like i was like Oh, I feel really bad for these guys. <laughs> Actually, it's really cool. But um, I need something with a bit more mature, like a bit more of a, and like, I feel bad for like kicking on them and like defecting to Rust because, uh, but I kind of had the sense. And this is Yeah, no, I talked about this with Steve Klapnik as well. Like the, there's, he was saying that there's kind of an open, I guess, sense that new languages cannot succeed without some sort of, public backing from a company, um, mostly in terms of financials, just because what it takes to have an effective ecosystem for a language, um, you know, just look at cargo, like cargo being a first class citizen of the language is awesome. I've tried, I've been trying to get into Python, uh, over the last couple of years, just cause it's never been on my radar professionally. And I find the environment handling and stuff for Python to be just really, really confusing. Uh, which is not to say that it is, but with something like Rust, it comes as a first-class citizen of using the language. Mm. No, no, I think those are really good points. The yeah, I, I, I was like, I kind of, you know, uh, I kind of did that little kind of calculus myself. Like, well, you know, Mozilla is, you know, fighting the good fight, and uh, they're kind of creating these really, you know, challenging software engineering problems, and so yeah how about i give that a go and uh so that was why i learned the language and you know just to contrast with my previous experience uh i think this was about 2015 i was relatively frequently asking questions and on like users.rustling.org and the responses that i were getting were really positive people were extremely helpful and uh and then i yeah i i just i liked the the a lot of you come to rask and you expect that it will be faster but what you don't realize is that it's actually really there are many things that are much easier in rust like enums are really good <laughs> and type safety actually makes sense i've tried to play around with haskell and you know, a couple of these functional languages and I've, like OCaml and stuff. And it, it never really clicked for me. But so I think I, I, I somewhat of a, a little bit of a tangent, kind of in line with what you're saying and maybe a little bit just nerding out. Um, but and, and this is kind of inspired uh, by finishing like your chapter around like the ownership system and, and lifetimes and stuff. Um, and the, the way that that Rust uh, is able to have like such modern syntax and such like awesome syntax. I mean, uh, so I've, I've done a whole lot with Scala. I've done a whole lot with Python, TypeScript, JavaScript. Um, and the ability to have these like higher level, uh, like syntax, uh, the, like higher uh, level grammar within a programming language, but then there be pretty much no runtime thrown in there no garbage collection like it's amazing like pattern yeah, matching yeah, absolutely. Uh, like 
I, I don't think I would ever be able to like really like, quick <laughs> pattern matching. I, I just have a funny story really quick. Um, just recently I was on the internet doing something, looking at something. Um, and there was this article on medium by some guy that was talking about how if and else are like not acceptable in programs and switch cases when there's more than one case or something. And I was like, I'll entertain it. And then it was an entire article about like why object oriented programming is the only way to do things. And then um, like laid out how you would restructure your code using inheritance and mm. internal methods in order to avoid using if and else. And I was like, this is awful. I was like, just like pattern matching, dude, just yeah. pattern matching. And uh, he, all, all I said in the comment was pattern matching is the best of both worlds. And he got really upset by that. Yeah, well, pattern think... matching is amazing. It's so good. And, and I, you can, uh, I, even in Rust, you can pattern match on like slices. You can do slice pattern matching, which was like absolutely my favorite thing to do whenever I had to do a lot with Scala. It's just such, uh, such a, uh, a beautiful way to write code. And then with Rust, it still compiles down to, like, there's no garbage collector. Uh, you know, it's all, uh, I guess technically you could say there's like a little bit of a runtime that's thrown in, into it, but um, but yeah, it, it's it's totally amazing. You you don't have to worry about the JVM, you don't have to worry about the Python interpreter. Um, and yeah, and your and your programs will start up as fast as they can, right? Like it will be. Uh, there's no 100 milliseconds of delay between kind of getting going and like starting up the engines, right? You don't have to wait for a jet to kind of start. Start, start cycling through the yeah I, and i just go, i want to say it again like pattern matching is so much more elegant than if else and not only if else but it's 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 more it feels nicer to write but it also feels so much easier to read and uh yeah i i, I this is this is how you can tell that rust is sort of predicated on sort of the ml family like i think the original compiler for rust was written in ocaml and that is that's yeah, like yeah. the uh the, that's the side of the yeah. world where pattern matching comes from really yeah yeah i i kind of like to describe rust as this language where java programmers and haskell programmers can kind of get along right <laughs> like like uh if implying feels... haskell programmers can get along with anyone <laughs> <laughs> like if there were a language where haskell programmers could like yeah yeah right so uh <laughs> but yeah yeah yeah. funny tangent um, there i did one episode on the podcast about this sort of with someone from the the haskell ecosystem who had been part of like a recent little mini controversy almost on reddit and uh yeah they're the only group of people on the internet that has like reached out to me personally via email uh just to let me know like things they hate about the podcast which is fine i love it but at the same time it's just interesting that they're the only ones it's not like the rust ecosystem or the javascript ecosystem it's like all the angry old men seem to be haskellers oh that's unfortunate because like yeah like I listened to a podcast with uh, actually from Microsoft Research with the creator, and I've, I'm going to forget his name, uh, sadly. Um, and he seems like the most wonderful person, Simon Le... Payton Jones, I believe. Um, and he doesn't, he seems completely the antithesis of this philosophy of you know, being exclusive. I mean, the language is exclusive. It uses a whole bunch of jargon that mathematicians appreciate. Um, but 
it's very obscure from the beginner kind of point of view and it it's intentionally different and i appreciate the fact that they've decided to do something themselves but it is a bit sad that you have uh yeah this kind of exclusivity thing i think a language like rust is necessarily more inclusive because everyone comes to rust with almost everyone let's say has got some prior background background so like jay you said you know really into scala and you know there are other people that come from kind of the ruby world oh, i think you know, really they... into is is very subjective i just had to do it to get paid <laughs> <laughs> right 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 well you know uh but the other thing is that uh rust is kind of come in at just about the right time like there was a sense i think early on that it was like a couple of years late uh like it took they took them a long time to get to 1.0 but now the programming industry or the software engineering sort of side is saying well actually maybe there are some good ideas about functional programming but we don't really want to give up on all of uh all of object orientation and what i really appreciate about rust is that They've just taken their time to design a language that's very practical. And like you were saying about cargo, just it just feels like, and like, let's say async, uh, like, will they'll have, you know, the, the ecosystem is happy to spend another six months kind of like drilling through all of the design until they're happy, until it feels right. You know, things aren't necessarily rushed. And uh, maybe part of that is actually the fact that there is this commercial backing and uh, there's a little bit of once you're if you're a paid software developer you can take the time because it's not like it's wasted on I mean in some sense like if you were doing nights and weekends you just want to write the code and uh, and so the first thing that seems relatively okay that's kind of what you implement I I'm just guessing if you you know incubate your own language, whereas yeah. I think with yeah. Rust, yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> I think with Rust you really have a a a group of a couple of hundred individuals these days who are thinking in depth and are being very deliberate about what is if we give ourselves five years to build a software a, a programming language to build the hardest software in the world like a web browser that is going to be attacked by every website that it encounters. Like, what would that w programming language look like? And I think they've done a pretty good job. Um, I mean, yeah. So um, it, it's kind of hard not to, to, to feel a little bit, you know, we're talking to you now at the end of August, 2020. It's, it, it's a little bit sad what's happening to Mozilla because I just, I really feel like the software industry. What's happening have... to Mozilla? Well, yeah, I think they're doing I mean, it to themselves. They, well, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, what's with that? Like, yeah, like... yeah, it's uh, it's awful too. And the last the last podcast episode I did, and I'm not I'm not like talking down on him at all. Uh, was with um, Tim, uh, John Munns of of from Ferris Systems, and I asked him a question about that, and I could I could feel him like pucker up a little bit because. They, they, his, his company has like sort of a business relationship with Mozilla. Um, and so he couldn't really talk too much about it, but yeah, I, it's, 
I think it's total bullshit. For, forgive the language if you're offended, but no, uh, no, they're no, paying their good. execs no, like two mouth. and a half million I'm each. It's insane. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't care if you're offended. <laughs> Yeah it, yeah, it is really unfortunate, um, and and I think it's really awesome that other companies have kind of stepped up and be like, "Hey, Mozilla employees, we're hiring. Come on over, come on over." Has here. that happened? Like when I, I haven't yeah, seen uh, any lifeboat dot com. It's just a long yeah, list. Of companies that I are mean, like uh, it's great, oh. but but I mean, like yeah, the the lifeboat thing is is cool, but like Google, Apple. Microsoft, you know, these fan companies like you know, Facebook, Amazon, uh, I just... The data leechers? Over. Yeah. yeah. Well, the evil kind giant. Of one of the reasons maybe why Mozilla wasn't able to uh, to get the traction it needed uh, in, in the browser space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's a very good point. And that, that's yeah, not, not only to... podcast episode in itself to talk about, uh, you know, big tech takeover. Yeah, and I feel weird about it too because right now, if you're a web developer and you're using TypeScript for something, you're you're using a, like statistically speaking, you're using a language that's maintained by Microsoft uh, in a code editor that's owned by Microsoft, um, uploading your code to a repository manager or whatever you want to call it that is owned by Microsoft, and you're downloading and uploading your packages to npm, which is owned by Microsoft, and statistically you're also doing it on a microsoft operating system mm-hmm. um so do we really need them to also own the rust ecosystem yeah yeah and i mean i was almost uh yeah i i think that's that's true and, and like in, in the google side you know you uh google controls your email probably it uh and your um, phone probably <laughs> your phone and there'll be people inside your team that that use google for uh for the phone you know, you probably use their free DNS. They own so many levels of, you know, for search, you know, without them on your team. Like if Google like says, sorry, <laughs> you're not part of the, the internet. Um, I'm not going to index you. Then like you don't exist. And uh, in different ways, you know, like AWS has, you know, it's, it's, there are alternatives obviously, but it's such a strange phenomenon that this system, this distributed computing platform, the internet, which looked like it was going to create like a federation of millions of different little com- companies because it's distributed by nature. What it ended up doing is creating these monopolies. And I, I, I totally appreciate although I hadn't really considered the implications so deeply of, you know, VS Code is your code editor. <laughs> You're running the, the programming language is, you know, commercial. I mean, it was fine if you are, you know, maybe a C-sharp developer and you're running Visual uh, Visual Studio, like, and you're pushing to Azure. Like, I kind of get that because you kind of buy in. But uh, with these open source projects, it does feel like it should be more participatory. Um but yeah, and I mean, you kind of can't escape it. I mean, it, you develop with React. You're kind of like, you know, that's Facebook running the game. Mm, you yeah. uh, you use Node.js. I mean, the the V8 engine was created by Google, and and they have a, a V8 team. Same with same with Chrome. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So like, and the uh, you know, and and it pops up in different areas as well. I mean, even and I yeah, I, with with Rust. So Mozilla. Uh, sorry, 
Microsoft has now taken over the CI builds, I, my understanding, and yeah, they're running GitHub Actions um, and so forth. And so now... AWS is also fronting a bunch of costs as well. Right, right. I mean, it, it sucks that it requires so much financial... It, like a programming language is a big, big project and the, it, it requires a lot of infrastructure. And so... Ah, I, I kind of want it. I I need to kind of keep my my own personal blinkers fixed <laughs> or like narrowed to the things that I can solve, right? And so one of the yeah, things sure. that I can solve is that uh, I've got again another very idealistic vision of creating fast software or enabling other people to create fast and efficient software, and. Uh, and to do that safely in a way that doesn't expose the users. And so if I can take a hundred hours from your learning experience with Rust, then it's worth spending 20 bucks with me or my publisher for the book, right? And right. Uh, so that's where I can, but where I can help is. And actually, you know, I'm going to go ahead and invoke the listener macro for the first time. Um, I actually had a listener of the podcast reach out to me directly to ask a question specifically to you. Um, so Jay pause, if you're, if you're listening, this is for you. Um, so what do you use rust for the most these days? Do you, is that what you're working on at canonical or, um, do you just use it for general programming? Do you use it more for embedded for web stuff? Like what are you, what are you using it for? Like in your own personal time? Right. So, uh, that's a really interesting, well, yeah. So I am spending most of my time day to day in go actually. Uh, uh, Canonical hasn't approved Rust as an, as like a, an approved language, and um, so Canonical is not canon. No, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Rust is Rust is not Rust canon. Is I not canon. messed up my own joke. No. Uh, <laughs> it's not, not as bad as uh, New Zealand being in the same country. So yeah, <laughs> the other side of the country, man. You know, yeah, that's Zealand. right. That's all right. We let them in slide. That no one heard that. <laughs> that's fine. Oh, yeah, I so. definitely heard it. <laughs> the uh. Yeah, I I do a lot of text processing with Rust. Uh, I really enjoy that it, and I'm getting more and more involved in data science in general. And I, uh, so that's being able to kind of munge a lot of text data and convert that into kind of an, a matrix, and which is the input source to some kind of machine learning machine learning kind of pipeline, and. The other thing that I've been really enjoying recently is creating generative art. So I recently bought a XY, like a pen plotter, and I have been doing a bunch of mathematics and kind of creating um, patterns and, and so forth. So I've been using Rust as a creative outlet as well. And uh, for that, I've been experimenting with the, uh, there's a product, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, Nano, um, N-A-N-A-O, uh, A-U, oh, no. N A N N A U. No, N -A -N -N -A -U. Oh, I got that wrong the third time. Fuck. Well, <laughs> N -A -N -N -A -U. It makes you feel any better. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. I think well, I, think like, I, I was, do. I was like, I'm going to post the link. And so it's. Uh, I can't post a link in a podcast. N A N N O U. They're getting my vowels all there's too many vowels. Dot C -C. You can there's a chat at the bottom if you want to send stuff. Oh, hey man. Okay, cool. Shit. 
Nano. The creative coding yes, um, yes. <laughs> framework in Rust. It's kind of like a processing um, thing. And uh, actually, I really... saw this just a couple days after I spent like seven hours on your uh, your website trying to understand who you are. That was before you stood me up. Um, oh fuck! Yeah, no apologies. <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> um, um, yeah, yeah. I that, so when I saw Nano for the first time like a week ago, I I was like, oh, this is like right up Tim's alley. I wonder if he's the mind behind this. this yeah, cool. I definitely not the mind behind it. It, uh, but I've been trying to flesh out the um, my YouTube channel and kind of my Twitch presence as well. And so I think that. Uh, Actually, just in terms of in terms of like what I'm doing and, and and so forth, I'm actually transitioning away from Canonical. I resigned last month, um, partially oh, wow. because I want to do more Rust. Actually, um, so I am draw. I'm joining a little consultancy based in New Zealand here. So, uh, and one of the things that I'll be doing is is teaching and training um, more often, and uh, yeah, so. So the things that I use Rust for, primarily text input, numbers output, the uh, creative coding and kind of my personal space. Um, and yeah, the, I just, in command line applications actually, or command line utilities. So I always would kind of script in, in Python. But <laughs> yeah, I was, I was about to ask that question. Like if you're doing like kind of text input and, you know, parsing some text, um, like in those cases, it's kind of like less important to have something, you know, speedy, quick, and you can generally write code a lot faster. Um, so why use Rust for uh, like tasks for that like that? Yeah. yeah, sure. So there's multiple. So the big thing for me, is that Python doesn't well memory use is probably the best the best thing is that I can use really small instance sizes to do lot like lots of processing. Um, I find that it's much cheaper to use low memory instances. Like memory is much harder to scale than than CPU. The other thing is that uh, <laughs> getting a type error or a name error or like getting an exception three hours in, like really sucks. And, uh, you know, you set something to go and you know you're going to come back into work in the next day and it will, uh, it'll be there. It'll all be ready for you. When uh, <laughs> it doesn't, it's infuriating. And uh, so I appreciate, like I've grown, I've grown to think of the compiler as kind of like a, an assistant or as like a coach. And when it's saying, Hey buddy, <laughs> you need to fix this. Like I take that on board. Whereas the Python compile, like the Python interpreter, it's just like, what? What have you got? I'll just try and I'll see what. I <laughs> and yeah, line uh, by line, just in time. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the times, it's like, hey, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just gonna crash. It's like, what? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I uh, for the um, so for the last year or so, I've actually had to do a lot with Apache Spark. I don't know if you. Uh, yeah, yeah, um, particularly with the the Pi the PySpark framework, and yeah, I yeah. have uh, it. So I had to do a bunch of stuff on top of uh, like pretty large bits of data uh, and data that had a lot of like you couldn't pull the data locally, um, and w I w I would be writing these like super long 
uh, like queries and super long uh, like spark DAGs. And I would throw it up, run it on AWS EMR and, you know, you know, six hours of processing later, I would get some kind of, some kind of issue. Um, and it's like, not e- like in Scala is pretty safe in terms of, uh-huh. of, um, of having the compiler kind of type check you. Uh, but Spark itself is not, no. uh, unless Spark, you, you add found... in a bunch of, you know, a bunch of different libraries. I just feel like the big data space, uh, is really lacking in general. And I feel like Rust could absolutely be applied. Uh, Cause right now it's like either Python, you know, pandas, uh, Jupyter notebooks, or it's JVM all day along with Hadoop. Yeah, I think, so I don't know if there's another time or a second interview, um, <laughs> but you've totally got me you're like, I, I hear you. And from my point of view, PySpark is just the most atrocious debugging experience that like, I just, I have, still have nightmares about this stuff. Uh, you basically and... just write a bunch of SQL and then tune some knobs <laughs> until yeah, it runs. Right. And then like you have to parse like uh, 17,000 lines of like really useless spark logs before you find your stack trace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're kind of shooting me right in the heart now. <laughs> I feel very called out. The um, one, actually I'll call that one project that I've been really stoked. Like, like I'm just over the moon about and that's PGX. Uh, and PGX is the most amazing utility, like framework for building Postgres extensions. And you can write them in Rust and it just basically, uh, then it will build, it doesn't just like give you some macros to help you with uh, with like writing these things. It actually has a couple, like a little sub command that will go and compile local versions of Postgres for 10, 11 and 12, I think, and will test your extension against each of those of against running instances. And like, it's just like, like I, I really want to rewrite Hadoop or some like, t- actually, you know, I don't want to re- rewrite Hadoop. What I want to rewrite is Apache Kafka and Apache Samza. So, uh, I love the idea of log structured data and being able to, uh, I think, append append only data stores are a very smart move in a big data kind of environment. And so stream processing, I think, is a a, a richer place to to play. But um, yeah, I, I, I so if you're not familiar with um, Oh, I, <laughs> do I need to explain Apache Samza? You kind of create materialized views based on uh, Kafka topics. Now, that totally feels like a space where Rust could just come and kind of blow away the competition because even though Kafka is huge and it's incubated by LinkedIn and so forth, it's still a dog to run. It's memory hungry. It's hard to, you know, you've got to throw in Zookeeper in there and it's, I just, I, just, I don't know. There's this, 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 this attitude that bloat is okay. And bloat, in my opinion, is totally not okay. Uh, it's environmentally it's wasteful. Yeah, it's expensive. It's environmentally wasteful. Um, this is going to sound ridiculous to you guys, um, but this is something I thought about maybe too much. And that is um, New Zealanders really care about being nuclear free and using renewable energy. Now, if I'm using compute resources like cloud resources uh, from the States, like I'm buying into nuclear power. 
like this feels like something that to me is uh like a personal attack well not really attacking and kind of like but like if there are certain things you know it kind of it doesn't really kind of gel really nicely you know i come from a country where 80 percent of our electricity is generated from renewable sources and uh the the idea that i need to go and use these companies that are burning coal and uh expending nuclear um nuclear fuel on <coughs> excuse me um i it, it kind of just doesn't really gel really nicely with me and what i want is for efficient cheap uh and ubiquitous compute to uh be accessible to people you shouldn't need a massive computer to be able to create a really amazing application yeah so would you say that uh, that big data may be like a um like s- have a huge future with rust do you think somebody's finally gonna actually take the time to set aside say hey let's maybe build like a huge uh distributed processing platform all in rust um i don't dude i bet oxide does that at some point soon yeah right (laughs) well you can kind of i can get the sense that given the individuals that are based in like (laughs) by the way if if steve and co uh actually uh (laughs) it's not um like i think joint kind of is it like i just hope that the joint story is not repeated at oxide i think brian and uh jesse and uh and the the rest of the team have something special and i really wish them the best because i think that again you can do things right uh and if you can do things right the people will follow now joint was a you know i think you know, being uh, stuck in Solaris or not stuck. Anyway, I should kind of back back to the topic about the big data thing. So big data. Uh, there is one company that I know, uh, Materialize IO, that uh, have a distributed uh, processing system based on uh, Frank McSherry's work. And he has published some really fascinating papers, uh, like being able to outperform a massive... Hadoop cluster on a single laptop just with kind of some relatively simple rust primitives that he's developed in the um in a processing system called timely data flow i think that the problem that you'll get is that no one wants to re-implement hadoop like the that's a the, lot a lot of layers if you want to re-implement <laughs> hadoop yeah and i mean like do you like uh maybe maybe the world hasn't changed so much but if you think about back in the day well like when yahoo was a thing and they needed to have a search index actually this would be a competition like there are a whole bunch of vcs based in the valley right now <laughs> like based in the bay area that want to spend money because interest rates are terrible the thing that you should do is hustle together you know we'll use the word hustle because that's 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 the bay area um they should spend a truckload of money on creating a system in Rust that is a search index that is very cost efficient. The processing system works really well. Like take on Google, not necessarily at search, but something kind of search like uh, that could incubate one of these processing systems or stream processing or distributed analytics uh, 
is like a really really big area now um random t- random interjection um yo i think uh i think as well the the rust ecosystem as a whole is going to probably solve that problem in general um i mean with things like WebAssembly and web WebAssembly system interface. I feel like especially with uh, a lot of the people like Lynn Clark and Alex Creighton that have been part of the a huge part of the Rust ecosystem working on that project. Um, I think that's going to bring an entirely new thing to the mm. uh, yeah the distributed development ecosystem. And I think yeah, absolutely. Like, the idea of having like a really fast performant browser, uh, like I'm sorry, a uh, binary runtime that can be transported across the wire and just run immediately. It's like all the benefits of data as code from Lisp, but all the the sort of um, with all the benefits of like whatever language you're already familiar with. And I think with all the benefits that Rust has, it's just going to be like really, really, really useful. Yeah, well, I don't think too many people actually, uh, well, maybe they, maybe they do understand the, what I'm about to say, but maybe they don't take the time to actually think about it. But... Um, doing absolutely everything on the heap as well as a garbage collector, like garbage collector pauses, um, along with any kind of serialization that you have to do. Uh, it's very, very expensive, especially whenever you're, you load, you know, billions of records, uh, in memory and, and, you know, uh, that out and have to, to transfer it to, to different nodes in a server. It's so expensive. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it it it's unnecessary as well. You know, like uh and that's one of the things that I think Rust has taught the industry is that actually it's and it's possible to have both. And I mean, this will, you know, bleed into other languages as well, but you can have high performance. You don't need a garbage collector. You know, uh, you know these ideas. You know, before that point around, you know, object orientation is how you solve this if else problem. You know, I think there have been so many missteps, and I'm sure even parts of Rust are going in five years' time will look a lot like missteps. Uh, so I've definitely got the rose tinted glasses thing going, but yeah, it it feels to me that. Yeah, focusing on the heap, you know, having references everywhere and being able to deallocate memory and, you know, it's it's so counter to how the computer wants to operate. The computer wants to be able, you know, computer architect, you know, really needs to be, algorithms need to be case sensitive. It's not just about big O notation anymore. It hasn't been for a relatively long amount of time. It's about how compact can your representation be and how many resources, can, how often can you perform similar or the same operation on chunks of basically homogeneous data and uh if you can keep things on the stack and keep your variables close to yeah close to where your processing is if you've got web assembly which means you can kind of use your you, you know you can distribute compute anywhere then and the other thing we haven't talked about much about is, is kind of immutability. And when you talk about WebAssembly system interface, you're talking about like actually everywhere. Like you could yeah. be able to run the same binary on a desktop and a phone and a server and in the browser. Like it, it could be insane. And like, it's amazing. I mean, I guess you had to learn from Java applets, <laughs> applets and uh, like whatever else we've had to learn from. And like, you know, there's been a, decades of JavaScript sandboxing and, and, it's amazing that it, well, at least again, it hasn't happened yet, right? The whole industry has not 
started to ship like ship WebAssembly and um and but yeah the the potential is just so massive and I mean the idea that we've actually the industry has been able to figure this out is just crazy. Um, Especially since it kind of happened asynchronously while I was doing JavaScript. Not to uh, not to push us along too fast, but um, I do want to talk about your book, and I don't know how much time you have, so I want to get to these these two questions in particular that kind of come from reading your blog um, before we like dive into your book. Um, the first thing is, I think we talked about this a little bit, and you've talked in your blog. You talk a little bit about not biting the newbie, which I think by which you mean you know it kind of refers to that anecdote that you were talking about where you reached out to the Erlang uh, user group or whatever, and they kind of shit on you for a second. Um, that was your inspiration, wasn't it? That, it was actually, that probably it's, it was kind of lingering in the subconscious. Uh, <laughs> I don't actually, uh, yeah, it's bound to have played a, played a, played a role. I, um, I don't think that I was thinking about that directly when I was writing that post, but yeah, probably. <laughs> We're here to psychoanalyze you. Don't worry. Yeah, My yeah, question in particular is, yeah, right. Um, I, I prefer like the uh, kind of like a dove seat or whatever they're called, where you get it's kind of like one of those <laughs> awkward seats. It's not really a, uh, a a love seat, but you get to lay back and be oh, a little yeah. bit uncomfortable. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. So, what do you mean when you say the suits are coming? I think we have a pretty good idea, but I mean, it, ah, is this yeah, Microsoft right. snatching up all of the? Uh, all of the right. people okay. that have got so laid off from there, Mozilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I think well actually a more interesting suit kind of like I actually was thinking more like an Accenture or um, you've got these systems integrators that have hundreds of thousands of staff and they're spread around the whole world. Now, if you want some enterprise piece of software written. You know, or you're a government, so you need your tax system to be redone, or whatever. You know, your motor vehicle licensing, or, or what have you. Um, you go to one of these massive companies, and they'll say, "Sure, we'll charge you billions of dollars for a software project that'll be pretty flaky." Um, but they'll probably implement it in either C sharp or Java. Now, they there are individuals within those large companies and those con large consulting companies that. And, you know, again, this might be IBM and it might be Accenture or it might be, you know, there's, uh, you know, a DXC Technology, I think, is another big guy. Um, there, there are several dozen of these um, large, large, large companies. Now, they are not going to be leaders in the sense of they're not going to rock the boat with their technology choices. They're going to pick tooling that means that they can effectively hire and you know at the middle of the range um and they will be able to just kind of use their resources and so they're going to pick boring technology choices and eventually though the same forces that are that are influencing say startups and and uh these kind of more a-list companies like the fang type companies to use rust and components will also feed into these other places and there will be the demand for you know uh so what i think by so there'll be demand for you know kind of like traditional training resources traditional 
kind of like sales events and there will be rust conferences that look very like you can imagine if you if you go to a i guess not this year <laughs> but if i were to go to a kind of an industry event uh with say 10,000 representatives from all across the world and it was you know really heavy sales focus and a bunch of people from the rust community and kind of like t-shirts and um wouldn't really fit in there but eventually the shape of our community will actually change as it's uh, the wrong word but like as a more traditional software engineer or a more traditional engineering manager kind of quote infiltrates the rust community and i don't mean infiltration in kind of the negative way i just mean that uh the software engineering like software engineering is bigger than just open source it's bigger than uh a couple of cool startups it's you know there are medium-sized engineering or like manufacturing firms that have three or four software developers building their little embedded controller now they might have been on the job for 15 years and they've got they run their c++ thing um and they've always done c++ but eventually they're kind of getting sick of sigfaults and having to debug these devices uh in the field and so forth now they will come too and they have a different kind of mentality uh the and rust is going to need to mold itself or at least be accommodating for diversity in in kind of almost the the inverse of what is intended by the term diversity <laughs> like um a much more kind of professional you know money focused you know rust is my job it's not my hobby um that's a long way to answer your question i don't know if you even got there but hopefully that makes some sense yeah definitely i think there's a like a bit of a delay uh i'm sure it's because you're so far away um yeah so uh how long ago was rust in action released like i know it's still in the early access program right yeah right <laughs> um it it uh, uh the, you, yeah again hit me in the heart with this question sorry so, i didn't i didn't mean to get too personal <laughs> <my bad. laughs> that's, um that's how fine how long has it taken you to write this book this, come on what are the shit come get it down uh, okay so it was released in july 2017 now this year. is gonna sound good really year. dumb but uh that's not the start of the project there was actually about a year prior to that i was talking with manning developing the table of contents of this thing in fact before and at the start of that process i was actually brought on as a co-author to this book project that had already itself stalled at least once and so i was kind of like the last chance saloon for manning <laughs> um yeah because and anyway i was brought on as a co-author the original author of the the re like, this was a second attempt and their first lot had pulled away the second uh, by this end uh yeah so if you want to do hunting you can actually find there's one repository that rust in action which is empty from another person or actually not quite empty um if you wanted to hunt you probably could figure out who in the rust community uh was 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 kind of the author of this book um but the uh 
it's been a really horrible process. And I mean, one of the most excruciatingly difficult things I've ever done in my life. Was and... it Steve? <laughs> just, tell me, just tell me, was it Steve? <laughs> it was not Steve. Um, oh man, it feels like a Steve, very Steve thing, I feel. Right. To just kind of like walk out? No, I think that he's stuck. No, 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 no. To, to write the book. Right. Well, um, like a, in a positive way. Yeah. Oh, right. So, so Rust in Action was never intended originally to be what it is now. So, right, what it is now is the book that you, or at least the way that I've been thinking about it and the way I've been talking about it, is the book that you read next. So, I don't expect anyone to pay for a resource when there are free, good, free things available. Now, if you have just scratched all around and it's like, well, this thing's really interesting, but I really want to work on a project. That's when you pick up Rust in Action. You pick up Rust in Action because you need, you're hungry for more. And that's why the, uh, but also you might be from a non-traditional background. So you might've been like me and only done Python, or you might've only done JavaScript or Ruby, or uh, you might've never touched memory before. And so that's why I need to spend a little bit of time fleshing out like what is a pointer and what is floating point and, and so forth, because I need to bring everyone up. And my, I see my role in the Rust community as kind of being an equalizer. Uh, the, uh, there was another part of your question. So anyway, um, the, cadence that, the cadence that I've tried to set is 8 p.m. to 11 p.m., three or four nights a week, plus a stint in the weekend. And uh, Wait, So you're still doing this like every week? Yeah, man. Uh, do, you, oh, do you live? I think I've I seen have, you on I have, Twitch. Have I, you I have not. This? <laughs> I actually have tried a couple of a couple of nights. I've been like, "Hey, look, I'm just going to live stream my editing process." Um, but I I got kind of self conscious and kind of backed down from. That. <laughs> so, oh no! Totally do it. I watch. Yeah. I will watch so, every single episode. I would okay. like to say that it, it. I have so much respect for you for writing this book while you are learning some pretty complicated topics um ha has there ever dude you literally point... started the book with the mandelbrot set i saw that and i was like a this fucking nerd and b <laughs> like i'm about to try the hell out of this right now i actually i spent like a day turning that code example into a webgl version to try and get it like done pixel by pixel i've since nice. ruined it by trying to get like original with it but yeah i had some really cool stuff there coming was, out of that. there have been the most amazing extensions of this thing so in chapter five you actually build a cpu emulator from this kind of uh thing that existed in the 70s this little game console uh called the chip eight and that is the uh, chapter i'm on by the way right right so uh and someone has taken that code and built a physical thing and then able to load roms from the original 70s gaming console that you like the home delivery thing and like got it live and like has got a physical game based and i was like dude that's crazy that's that that's awesome. that's that's I'm super not gonna cool lie, I, I was not expecting to it to act, like for this these exercises and especially that cpu emulator one i was not quite expecting it to actually be what it what it you said it was going to be right, <laughs> so right, I, right. I, I, i'm very much used to these tutorials and these books being like, yes, we're going to build an OS. And then it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like just a screen that says hello world. All um, right. Yeah. So in the like chapter, the kernel chapter, you do create, in fact, uh, you do create an OS and like a bootloader. And uh, actually it, 
leverages quite a lot of like Philip Oppen, the the blog OS project. Uh, but yeah, so you you will be writing an operating system kernel, uh, and the and you'll also be compiling Rust for an operating system that doesn't exist yet because you're writing it at the same time, and like the whole point of the book is to just blow people's mind and say this thing that you've got in front of you this rust compiler is amazing like make use of that guy like <laughs> or make use of her you know put whatever pronoun you want in front of that rust compiler and just kind of make it yours and the like and i i i'll say one of the reasons careful so mozilla long, still owns the pronouns right 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 <laughs> one of the reasons why it's taken so long is that like the projects work so if you think about if you think about writing a technical book, you're like, oh, da, 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 we'll talk about CPUs or whatever. Um, now you might spend like in a like a hobby project, you're like, oh, I'll spend six weeks like implementing something, and you got to write it up, and then you so you implement it, you write it up, and then you need to reduce what your code does based on the level of knowledge that you've already introduced in the book. So there are about over mm, I'd say 150,000 words. Of content that actually I've like got in a in a like archive folder for later for like future blog posts <laughs> because yeah, I, I, I really to... do I really do love how you you introduce these like okay now we're gonna do this um, you'll notice this line here let me explain what this line is so it's kind of like instead of introducing like a like hitting somebody with a a ton of introduction knowledge about Rust it's more like well let's write something and then learn what we're doing as we're doing it which is which is kind of how people learn in you know in in their our, our actual jobs uh, like the majority of developers are uh like their job tells them to do something and then they google for five minutes start writing code and then just kind of fumble through it until they understand what's going on um dude and, I, I never google know. when i code I'm, I'm actually i don't believe in that I'm just, no, you're just, not, you're a just, liar you're just kind the... of, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm absolutely kidding. I wouldn't have a career without it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. I like, I, one of the things I despise the most about, uh, about like the whiteboard interview process is that not just it, not just is it artificial, but it's completely disingenuous. It doesn't test anything that is relevant. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, going back to Rust in action. Yeah. So I was like, what can we talk about? Well, you know, like let's implement an NTP, NTP client. Like let's just figure out like, and so what I did was like build the thing from scratch. And, uh, and that's what I want to give people the impression with when they read this thing is that they can do it too. Like your systems programming is not for the balls that it takes though. I feel like, oh man, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I really respect what you're doing. Yeah. So, um, so let me let me ask this, and I and I don't mean this in an offensive way, but how how do you know that what you've done or like you've made you've created this uh, CPU emulator or this kernel? How do you know that you did it right enough to actually put in a book? Like, yeah, that's a tough one, man. Because I tell you what, like I don't, and like I struggle with this so much. <laughs> Um, like, uh, honest, and, 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 and semi honestly, every time I pushed, like, the, send on the email to the editor and say, "Look, I've got another chapter," I was just waiting and waiting and waiting for the flood of emails saying, "What the fuck? Like, how could you do this?" Um, the 
that never came. Absolutely, people have been so wonderfully supportive. And just I like that the projects, they're not just real and useful for learning, but they actually, they're interesting. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, we're going to make a thing where you can put in pictures of cats. It's like you start with the, you start with the Mandelbrot set. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the thing that, that I keep coming back to is from, from the very first code example, things are actually like engaging. Well, that's really, I really appreciate it. And I mean, uh, yeah, again, I mean, I kind of blowing my own horn a bit, but I guess you do that when you're on the podcast, but you know, people have literally said, this is the best technical book I've ever read. And then the question is, well, like, again, why isn't it done? And if you read, I've got a couple of Reddit posts actually, um, where I've given people updates and one of them I'm pretty openly, I was called like the mental health edition. And, uh, I just express that I've just, I'm completely burned out. And, uh, so they have, I say like I've worked eight to 11 PM, four nights a week. Uh, that has on the whole been the experience, but also, um, uh, there have been a couple of months where it's kind of been completely dead or I've had to rewrite. And so the rewrites are actually the real killer because I was going to say like the process is you get the, you send the thing and then the, your editor comes back and says, Oh, look, by the way, here's some red ink. And so the, uh, it's not just rewriting things once, like some of the chapters have been rewritten multiple times. Uh, in fact, you'll just see probably this afternoon, the CPU, this chapter five that we've just been talking about has been expanded uh, quite a bit to uh, and simplified and kind of chunked up much more. And, and so that took a good six weeks to to kind of flesh out again. And every single re every single release is a new cycle of comments. And I have over a thousand comments pending on this Manning live book. So you can kind of select some text in the web version of the, if you buy the ebook, you get multiple versions of, of one of them is PDF, one of them is, you know, EPUB, but uh, you also get access to this live book, which is a, a web version of the thing. You can highlight a text and kind of comment it out. <laughs> but uh and say look you, you need to fix this the, the, and that's great except for the fact that people never check if it has already been <laughs> if it's already that's been how, commented. that's how you get 200 comments about some typo that you made on on page you know 190 yeah 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 and what i wanted to say to people like yeah so in, in like in a couple of cases it's like 20 or 30 comments which is like hey this is this sucks no it's not this sucks it's it's typically like oh there's a, a typo and the what I want to say to people is like, you know, don't worry about the typos because they'll be fixed. Uh, the stuff that the, the stuff that's really important is like, were you not able to understand? Like if there was a gap, like let's say that I'm trying to say, talk about the stack in the heap or whatever. And then I'm like, people will just get lost. Well, that's a really important thing to pull up. It's like, if you've jumped too far as, a, as an author, like I can't go and rewrite that. But there's a copy editing process and uh, and so forth. The other thing that was has been hard for me mentally has been that I've been leaving people hanging. So they typically, you typically start a book and then you get a couple of chapters in and then you kind of fall away. Like life happens. You know, maybe 10% of people kind of make it all the way through and uh, to the end. <laughs> By the way, you should be in that 10%. It's really good. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see. Yeah, right. 
yeah, so so most people kind of only make it a third of the way through. Like in any technical textbook, that's just how it goes. And so most of the comments are at the start, but the problem is I've tried to be finished. I'm trying to finish this damn thing. And so I've been focusing on like chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and, and whatever. So I haven't, I haven't really responded. And there are some things that have been languishing for about a year that I've just got to. Uh, now, yeah, so uh, like the, I, the question about like, when is it good enough? You know, I have accepted that people software people understand that this is software you know the comments that people have are like why didn't you use like rust format <laughs> why isn't there a... and i'm like well actually there's some requirements around physical book sizes i can't use I, the same in, like i've been told by my i'm only allowed to use kind of 70 character like <laughs> like there are some constraints that don't exist when you're on a text editor when you're actually printing something on on the physical page uh and the other thing is that i one of the things about Rust in Action, actually, is that I have tried to use Rust that is more understandable to newer programmers who might be from like a Java or C Sharp or like some other background to the expense of which, uh, but I haven't used a lot of really Rust, idiomatic Rust. And so some ex expert Rust programmers are like, ah, this is really ugly. You're using for loops here. This should be, this should be kind of like a map. I'm like, well, yeah, it should be. But also the people that are reading this don't know what the heck um, a map function is. So why am I, I can't introduce lambdas yet because I don't want, I'm talking about something else. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting. And, and to bring, go back uh, a handful of minutes to where you said that, like you were kind of expecting emails to come in and say like, hey, this is wrong, or this is not how you do this, uh, specifically in regards to these more uh, seemingly complex like systems programming, because the majority of people, especially web devs, are like so intimidated by that. Um, and I was curi curious if you are kind of like in the same train of thought as myself in that uh, I feel like that kind of shows that there is no right way to do anything. There is right enough. And then there is eh, maybe that could be better, but I don't really know, but it works. Um, Cause I, I feel like everybody kind of has this general um, idea around systems engineers and that they are, like so in, incredibly like genius level um, where they're like just doing every, you know, writing the most elegant, perfect, safe code. Um, and I think we all know that that's not really true. It's like, no, nobody's like there, there are certainly very uh, many people that are, you know, special, but most people are, are pretty normal and like, <laughs> i'm totally like not most in code like, yeah. most code like that humans write isn't that great and uh if there were if if these systems programmers were writing uh correct code to begin with we probably wouldn't have rust um yeah so, i think actually yeah so there's so much truth in what you've just been saying the uh like first of all there isn't a per like like there is no perfect software. Uh, there is no way to do things that are, you're not actually trying to like find perfection. Perfection doesn't exist. It's a creative endeavor as well as a technical one. You know, software is weird in that aspect. Again, you're right in saying that 
people's perception of systems engineers or you know kind of like uh, is just you know it's like it's misguided it if you're a front-end developer you have every right like you have a seat at the table as far as i'm concerned and i don't think that you know a systems engineer someone who's been deep dive in the kernel is going to have just as much difficulty writing react as you did when you started learning react you know or like if you're on Vue.js land that's kind of that's all good now uh that doesn't mean that someone who's writing a file system driver is somehow better than you it just means that they specialize in a different domain you know and whatever and you have every right to learn as much as you want and in fact the fact that we the way i like to look at it too is that they're just they're fucking nerds you know so like <laughs> You're just, you know, you, that maybe they're maybe they're really great at writing file system drivers, but like maybe you're really good socially. So yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. fuck them. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> I'm just totally. kidding, obviously, but yeah, no, I mean the thing is, well, actually, I mean again, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, one of the things that I I have been fascinated about, like I got uh, diagnosed with being on the spectrum uh, a couple years ago now, right? So this was I was in, um, and. I think that there is actually a problem there with people not knowing that neurodiversity exists and the fact that actually it's, you know, we have a lot of people in this industry who are like, have autism and like, we need to get better as an industry at being able to communicate with everyone who's part of this thing, as well as being able to teach, like, I don't want to kind of paternalistically tell you you should kind of talk to a doctor but also if you've been having trouble socially and finding yourself uh finding yourself stuck because of social situations you know it could be the fact that your brain is actually different than the majority of humans on this planet now that gives you a very special access to uh to other facilities that those people cannot but it has this you know like social weaknesses is kind of one of them for me the thing that really uh yeah anyway so I, just kind of just random aside you know like saying you know because there's, uh, there's this kind of typical thing of like the kind of over and through the sort of over focused nerd who's kind of socially incapable like that stereotype exists as it exists because of people not understanding or not having enough sophistication around neurodiversity and i think that that's another um part of the game that that's really challenging because it's no one is going to come out and say, <laughs> by the way, like I'm like, I look fine, but uh, you know, like I'm definitely in like a neural like minority, like no one enjoys being uh, part of the um, like, no, one, everyone wants to be in the club. Even if you're socially incapable of being sort of in the club. I um, think, and I think it, it cuts both ways too. Like there are, I feel fairly socially capable, but even, even when I've struggled through something in the past, uh, like intellectually, I sometimes forget it. So that is a weakness of mine where like I have previously mastered calculus and now cannot remember any calculus. I used to be able to speak Spanish and now I cannot, I can't remember anything about it, any of the grammar. And so, you know, if uh, it, it cuts both ways, like some people might be down on themselves because they're not socially adept, but there are others of us that are focused more on their, you know, their intellectual. So, side of things when, when it comes to like looking down on themselves. Um, and I think the the takeaway message is that we're all 
who, you know, whoever we are or whoever mm, we're supposed to be. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I, the, I, I think, um, especially this, this past year has kind of, uh, at, at least in several camps that I'm involved with there. I mean, there are plenty of camps who are the exact opposite of one of what I'm about to describe. Um, but I certainly feel like there is significantly more inclusivity. Uh, so it, it's not like, uh, a surprise to anybody that there are a lot of social issues going on, especially in the United States. Uh, and in, in certain uh, camps, it certainly socially set us back. Um, but in a lot of camps, it's really pushed us forward to like these, like, uh, like more layers of acceptance uh, and like um, normalizing talking about mental illness and, and issues that you struggle with. Um yeah, yeah, so I, mean, I think that, that kind of like inclusivity is really, really important for us to talk about and to have. It's really hard to make yourself vulnerable. Like it, by definition, exposes you to pain uh, or at least the potential of pain. And so I can, I yeah, no, no, no. It's trying to kind of think coherently now. The uh, it's It's important. Uh, if you are in a leadership position, I think it's especially important to make it clear to uh, your audience that, you know, you're a human too, you're not a superhero, and that we, you know, like, we can get through this, like, <laughs> uh, like the social issues. Yeah, that concrete, concrete example of that, like, uh, the guy, and this is, this is probably really dumb and small, but like, you know, speaking directly to that mental space, um, I recently the thing with Bevy came out. Bevy was released and it looks really awesome. And then you've got this guy that's like, uh, you know, got out of college working for Microsoft or whatever and is like a badass and then dips out to work on this like awesome Rust project full time. And there's it's like for me personally, there's some reverence there because those are like all things that I would like to have done with my life. Um, and, you know, then you try to get involved in the ecosystem. And I like I remember I asked him a question in discord or something and it kind of like the response came off as like and eh, you don't really know enough for me to really answer that question so i'm gonna kind of sidestep it um sort of thing it's just really discouraging i think and uh this is not at all to like shame him i'm, I'm sure that that's not at all his goal but um yeah it just yeah, speaks I to that, that same thing i yeah, think and I mean it, it it might be a little hard to especially in in the like you know discord slack you, it's so much harder to uh communicate the tone in which you you are talking like it very well could have been an instance of like oh man like i don't like i have a ton of stuff to do right now i don't like i gotta i gotta focus on that um yeah. for sure i'm not at all speaking to his actual feelings or mentality in any way i'm just speaking to like how i perceived you know the actions and I think that it can be discouraging uh, when you look around and I mean, even I who like on paper, am like a really successful software engineer uh, and an expert in like a couple of domains. Now it's like, I still feel really, you know, uh, whatever, whatever feeling you want to attribute to it. But like, a, I always like a noob. A noob. Yeah. I, I feel like a damn noob. You know, and you're also kind of like, you've got this kind of amazing podcast and, you know, I, 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 I feel that as well about this book, you know, people are, I'm 
coming to terms with the fact that people are talking about me as yeah dude you dope <laughs> yeah right well I've, I've had someone say like oh i'm tim mcnamara's biggest fan you know like and and people are like following the stuff that i'm doing and this is not a situation that i'm very skilled at like i'm not very familiar with being uh like as much as you know we talked about steve like i don't have like five like uh five thousand people on my twitch stream like i got like 200 followers or whatever so <laughs> like i might get like a dozen views um but the but but still the like maybe part of it is that like if you have kind of grown up as an engineer like grown up prof professionally like becoming a men becoming a kind of moving towards kind of a leadership uh position whether or not that's socially or professionally is itself a learning experience and you know it might have been the case that uh and it, it 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 is very very easy when someone is new to the community to just turn them away because they are very they're feeling really tentative and so uh yeah i i, I mean it's it's tough because if you talk to people who are quote made it or just read any of their writing, you can just get this. You just get this the sense that they had exactly this like same feeling. I just think it's so shit that everyone feels that everyone else is better. Like, why are our brains like that? I don't. I don't understand. Which is <laughs> our competitive so, nature. Uh, so to to like combat that, you also have an entire camp, which is especially on the internet that comes off as the exact opposite. I mean that the the whole shenanigans with the creator of the Actix framework with Rust. Uh, which I know Ty's a, a big fan of this topic. Um, like, honestly, it, it became a huge... I just like controversy. I just like bringing up <laughs> things that make people squirm a little bit. I do want, I, I know that we're, we're, we're like well over, <laughs> I've given some people a lot of editing time to do. But um, actually, you know, finish your, your topic today. But I'd love to chat about ethics uh, just for a tiny bit um, because I had my own response to that as well. Cool. Yeah. I mean, so the. Uh, so, like the the author wrote some unsafe rust. Uh, you know, I I don't actually know what the code was, but his claims were that it it was in good context. And I th even in your book, you mentioned like, hey, we're like you write unsafe rust in your book, and you say we are writing it unsafe because we are doing things that we should not be doing, and like in in the typical rust context, like we're doing things that that rust is is not. Uh, ready to let you do so we're just going to you know wrap it in some unsafe block um but then you know there's a, a whole debacle and instead of there being like a, a sane conversation around it, it it certainly devolved into like personal attacks towards this author um which and then he, he got then, aggressive right back. Yeah, then he responded also with aggression, ended up like ripping down the, the repo and ended up putting it back up and then quitting and letting somebody else take over. Yeah, uh, I, I, I feel like there's like a double-edged sword there. Uh, yeah, there's I, a double-edged sword there because I, I hate the fact that this this guy put so much hard work into like a really awesome framework just to like totally get shit on. Uh, but then at the same time, uh, like whenever you put yourself out there, uh, like you, you have to be able to like have the thick skin to accept those, like the, the toxicity that comes with, uh, like the, the public. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. So, and about this, right? So, I think you're right that if you you can't just like you've got to kind of be humble about it, and you also need to remember that if you have a software project that is public, it's it's kind of a social, it, you know, like by definition, it's kind of yeah, you you it doesn't exist without the community really <laughs> like you may as well not publish it as open source if you are not prepared to engage um so to rust's credit like as a community like there's this kind of allergic reaction to to unsafe i think that it's maybe a bit of like an autoimmune autoimmune kind of reaction that might be slightly overstated and in particular i was really I, I, I couldn't really make, I wasn't sure what to make with this discussion, like that whole thing. Like, I don't think that we should persecute someone for making a technical decision in their project. However, I think there were kind of bad steps made on both sides. And like people were submitting pull requests that were just being closed, which had no performance imp impact that, uh, or negligible performance impact that removed unsafe. Um, one thing that I did was uh, write. A, uh, I, I gave a talk really recently. Uh, how ten open source projects manage unsafe code? Because I was like, well, okay, Rust community. If unsafe is so bad, like, well, how do you do it? And so <laughs> there is like, uh, I kind of went and like inspected the source code repositories of like these big, big projects from like Mozilla, Google, Dropbox, AWS, um, and a bunch of others, and there and, and and like looked at their contributor documentation and say well like what are your guidelines around unsafe and there's a massive diversity there's no consensus around how like what are the what's the right way to write unsafe code uh the upshot that i got was that if you have an unsafe block you should always add a comment explaining to someone who is unfamiliar with the code why it is the case that the the stuff inside unsafe is like is actually safe i almost feel like the word the unsafe keyword is kind of misnamed it should probably be unchecked <laughs> because in principle the the code should still be safe it's just unable to be verified by the compiler you shouldn't be writing things that are actually unsafe <laughs> uh, you should only be writing things that are safe but you have to do the compiler's work for it now um that talk, uh, which was part of the, I think the Rusty Days conference, uh, late July, the actually spurred some changes to like one of the upstream projects that I contributed to, like sorry that I talked about, and uh, and I thought that was that that was really encouraging, um, and so yeah, I that was how I was really disappointed with Rust's community with with that whole debacle i i was i really didn't really know what to make of it i uh, i thought it was overblown in both ways yeah i i can definitely see that so we are coming up right at two hours and i'm going to like make sure my last question gets answered uh so specifically around deno so um so whenever ryan Dahl kind of introduced deno which is like this this new javascript typescript runtime uh built with rust um, he kind of said like the, the, the progression that he sees web services being built is JavaScript. Uh, and then once it starts to mature, you need some type safety, you go to TypeScript 
And then once the, once it continues to mature, you go to rust like that. That's where he kind of sees the future of like the progression of web services. Um, so I was curious on on kind of your thoughts around that and in particular using Rust for web services as opposed to systems uh, engineering. Uh, and this this also kind of comes from the so the this kind of same question was asked to uh, a group of employees at a place Ty and myself actually both work together. Um, and it was actually kind of negative. Like they, nobody really agreed that Rust w- was good for the like the web services. It was all like, why, why do that when you have JavaScript and Node and uh, like Node can can scale pretty well. And um, but I, I always thought that was kind of strange because it's like, why not use Rust? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, right. So I'm 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 really optimistic that Rust is has a much wider domain. So I, I'm an advocate for the for the idea that Rust has a very uh, a very wide range of applicable things that can be written with it productively. Now, whether or not it's going to be quite so, and I think that even with TypeScript, it's not. <laughs> and this this is why you might need Rust anyway. Like if TypeScript was quote good enough, you would stop there. It's not the performance gains from Rust that you get that's really useful. It's the type of the type safety and then effectively the, the the ownership and the borrowing system. Like that is like that's that's what you get from having this well-engineered system. Now, can you can you and, and so the question becomes like can you write it like let's say 50% slower than a like comparative, I think that's 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 a bit mean to to Rust. But let's say, like, let's say that you take like a fifty percent tax on like developing some piece of code for the web, uh, rather than say a JavaScript or a TypeScript implementation. Like, would would that be worth it? I think it probably would still be worth it. The uh, you're gonna have a system that is much more stable. And I think stable in a slightly different way, like its memory use is going to be pretty consistent. It's going to be much more predictable. Your operations are actually going to be a lot simpler. You're going to need fewer instances. You're going to need less DevOps, basically. Uh, I think that you are going to have a lot of spin-off benefits that will justify it. Now, whether or not Rust can kind of head-to-head, like get, if you are like uh, going for a... Like, yeah, a head-to-head comparison of like, well, what can we ship fastest? I think she, that, like, I don't think Rust is going to win that race. But if you want to build a solid, solid foundation for a company that is built on the web, like your services are, uh, are, are delivered via the internet, I think you'll win that race with systems built in Rust much more effectively than like... Uh, written uh, systems that are written in a dynamic language now <laughs> that's obviously uh, not to say that yeah so 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 i think that uh so i think that's that's an in principle answer i think the in practice answer right now is that the maturity of the front the, the maturity of the node the dino uh landscape is probably like you have a community of people that know how to write the tools and systems in like 
Nodeland or Indino Land that work, that gel together. Now Rust's Rust doesn't have that same ecosystem of developers and kind of and and so forth. So maybe in principle it's better to use Rust, but in practice right now there's uh, maybe maybe you could still um, uh, go for 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 JavaScript first. I'm yeah, so that, that, that that's kind of a, a long-winded answer. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I, I've professionally written bugs in JavaScript for the last five years, so I'm kind of excited to uh, to uh, maybe see Rust kind of pop through that, that domain a little bit more. Man, you're making me feel old. Uh, he's actually a couple years old, younger than I am. And the crazy part is I have now lived through the birth of the Dart programming language the death of the Dart programming language and the reinvigoration and and rebirth of the the Dart programming language, and it just feels like a lot. Yeah, Dart is an interesting one as well. Like Flutter has just you know, like Google has said, you know what? Actually, industry was wrong. We're going to use we're going to use Dart and we're going to use it for Flutter. <laughs> so, yeah, um, well, I'm sure they're going to drop Angular three rewritten in Dart at some point. It'll die, man. <laughs> The thing is, these things can't die. That's the weird thing about software is that there's always like, there's, there, you know, there's probably some cold fusion still live on the web, right? Like, yeah, there absolutely is. Yeah, <laughs> my last project was maintaining a before I got my my current job was maintaining an Angular one application, so like an Angular JS application. Nice. Yeah, that's that's awful. I mean, PHP five is probably still everywhere. I mean. There's Actually. kind of no escaping it. Whenever something, whenever you write something like software, uh, if you do it uh, mostly right and it, it gives the business what it needs, then it's done. You don't, you know, if it, if it works for five more years after that without any updates, it works. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. all and of I, a sudden you need something changed and you're kind of up a creek because nobody nobody knows how to really do this anymore. I know we're uh, we're starting to cut into your afternoon at this point. I want to ask you one question in particular, just because I have to, and I know that you're really into uh, data driven creativity. Um, have you heard of Brett Victor, and have you seen his his uh, his talk, Inventing on Principle? And if so, what do you think about his game engine? And do you think that Rust could be done or used to make something awesome like that? I have absolutely heard of Brett Victor. <laughs> I can share his talk. I all I the knew time. it somehow. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, total Brett Victor fanboy. The um, look, ultimately, you got to use the tools that you know, and uh, I think he sees himself not as someone who kind of creates the thing, but someone who kind of creates the space for the thing to be built. And um, you know, uh, I was also a. Uh, kickstarter backer of like the light table ide project kind of this dynamic ide um and uh again it was like one of the and, and it was built from brett, brett victor's ideas of being able to kind of create an immersive environment now you know the prototypes and the demos and so forth are useful i haven't played around with his latest thing that you're referring to so but my sense is uh, he wants to be like, like his space in the world, at least right now, is 
the person who opens people's eyes and i think he is happy with that or at least that's my impression <laughs> uh yeah so i uh i i don't have a hard and fast thing around well should you use a particular programming language like it's not a religious affiliation um like if he knows closure script or if he knows like oh uh, this isn't about anything concrete he he made like this implementation in like 2007 of a game engine that allowed you to sort of map time to space and sort of like change values and then uh, yeah, them. I was oh, just okay. asking so if like, you had it's, seen it's that. Of, it's of that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, yeah. and he demoed this really amazing talk, and you're just kind of sitting there going, "Why haven't we done this already?" Yeah, <laughs> and we still uh, like that was in 2007, and now we still haven't done it. Yeah. Um, look, and text is still the medium by which we produce source code. Like it's weird, but it works. And it like we've we've got this problem. I say problem, but it's just. Like and it comes back to legacy systems as well. Like we just kind of have these layers of sediment that we build the next thing on top of. Instead of like going and like <laughs> going and like digging away the old stuff. Like we don't rebuild things that are functional. We just uh, Alan Kay just... talks about this. He he basically calls it like cr creating a, a more complex building block to clean up the implementation details. Yeah, yeah, it's sad and it. I just see it in so many places now. Uh, and, and I currently work on this, you know, currently on this last, it's actually on two days, two days to go um, before I, before I, uh, but the current software project that I am working on, um, it's this um, DevOps tool that's really good uh, called Juju. And um, it has a problem in which like it's well over a million lines of code now. And it just kind of buckles under the weight of itself whenever you try to add a new feature. Like, I just feel like software projects must get to a point at which you can no longer understand the system in which in, in our, our, our attempt to fix that is just again adding the next feature, which actually, you know, compounds the problem <laughs> rather than remedying it. I, uh, but yeah, I absolutely uh, think that we could do better as an industry and uh, we can make computing more accessible to new programmers. I, uh, and kind of, yeah, I, but, um, yeah, it, it's unfortunate, but also you, you, you kind of got to work in the present. I, you know, well, what have we got? We've <laughs> got a text editor and, uh, you know, what have we got? We've got a, uh, text editor run by Microsoft, a uh, source code control system. <laughs> that, oh uh, God! Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we shouldn't have that discussion again. But uh, uh, ultimately, Rust is a secure. Well, no, Rust is a stable foundation for big stuff. And not only is it a secure foundation, but it's also a a a sort of a software ecosystem that encourages experimentation. It, it encourages people uh, to come at the problem with novel ideas. And uh, yeah, as a, as a, and, and so if people wanted to implement like a new IDE or a new programming environment for creative coding, then by all means, implement it in Rust. And by the way, you know, compile it to WebAssembly. It's going to work in your browser. And then uh, you can also have parallel, you know, like a backend processing and, and WASI. And then so you could have 
uh, you could have like a complete uh, distributed processing framework and kind of like managed by, uh, you know, you could have your render farm created inside the browser and uh, yeah, and just kind of ship your game assets. You know, I, there's heaps of opportunity, but I, I, I love Rust. I love WebAssembly. I really like the WebAssembly system interface that you've been discussing as well. And uh, and I, I, I think that Rust is a really good shot at, um, at, at, at leaving a really positive legacy. So I have some, uh, go, go ahead, Ty. Oh, no, no, go ahead then. I was just going to say to, uh, before we ended things, I have a, a few rapid fire questions I wanted to throw at you. Oh God. <laughs> you hit me. So what OS do you use? I use uh, Ubuntu. Awesome. Oh, uh, I was actually going to, I was going to ironically ask that question earlier just to like put you in the spotlight. <laughs> and I forgot like, oh, you work at Canonical. Hmm? Like what, what right, operating system right. are you on right now? It's like, do you use Arch? <laughs> no, actually, no, no. We I, all uh, use uh, Windows at Canonical. We know. That's this. right. That's right. Yeah. We well, we know, we know all the Windows that. guys use Macs. Yeah. Right. It's kind of a twisted inverted world, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I, I, I run the LTS uh, Ubuntu. Pretty stock, actually. I've actually um, pretty stock image. So, what what IDE do you use or text editor? I am using Visual Code, Visual Studio Code, because uh, my rationale for that machine. I know. Again, he yeah, says I... he says after four days of not using VS Code. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I um, I use it partially because the Again, I want to provide something, you know, like I do a bunch of live streaming, and so I want to create something that's accessible. Uh, I like the integration. I really enjoy the remote code feature. I find that kind of phenomenal. Uh, and uh, but I've actually for Rust for big big projects um, have been enjoying. Like I I use C Lion a lot, or at least used to, um, but. I didn't want to pay for another license, unfortunately, um, for, for them, for JetBrains. And uh, I uh, haven't, I've never been able to kind of teach myself Emacs. Like I've always wanted to know, like to be able to figure Emacs out, but I've never been able to just kind of like pause the rest of my life for three months while I learn key bindings and a whole- You're actually uh, talking to two like extremely recent Vim uh converts i guess yeah I, I i just i my hobby as of the last week what i'm pouring all of my free time into is a vim rc file nice yeah well i can i i used to code in vim a lot uh and uh i really like the yeah i i but i i can't remember why i stopped i just feel i just i just did i kind of fell off the wagon and um Maybe, maybe I think whatever get gets the, the job done is all that matters. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's whatever, whatever. I think whatever gets, gets out of your way and makes you feel cool, I think, is, is what's most important. <laughs> so next question, next question. Uh, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you hate Golang's error handling? Oh, my God. Uh, I'd give it a seven, actually. Uh, no, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. Hate you, so you hate it is... at an eight. Ooh. <laughs> I don't hate it as much as the like occasional missed error handling <laughs> or like <laughs> this is kind of the problem. 
like the error handling is fine it's the not handling the error that's the problem all right and so last question what's something that you're looking forward to doing tomorrow oh you know what i've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and we are going to have the best... four funerals <laughs> Get out of your <laughs> I had a I had a thing going, man. I was, I was going to give a I'm really sorry. inspirational little anecdote and just an insight. Um, we are going to go to the playground and have an awesome time. It's going to be a lovely uh, early spring day, and I uh, am really looking forward to it. Now, <laughs> um, I really enjoy my weekends, and I really uh, really enjoy the time with my with my daughters. Awesome. Absolutely. So yeah, that that's that's all that I have. Yeah, for sure. Definitely want to thank you uh, a ton for coming on. I know we were, ran forever. Hopefully we didn't keep you from anything. Um, I think it was a really great conversation. And honestly, you're just you're just a very enjoyable person to talk to. So hopefully I can uh, convince <laughs> you to do it again in the future. Seven sometime. out of 10. I'll give you a seven out of 10. Uh, I, well, look, I'll take it. <laughs> per- perfect five out of seven. <laughs> The um yeah no I've really enjoyed my time here don't feel uh I've 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 been wanting to apologize because uh the um yeah because I, I I don't know how willing your audience is to listen to me ramble instead of just giving you guys a straight answer but um it's been it's been really enjoyable I've appreciated um, both your support as well as the opportunity to kind of to share my story and um yeah I'd absolutely love to to hang out on um on the virtual world again i think it's a it's a really neat show i like the diversity of of topics that you guys uh, chat about and um if you want to talk about big data man and <laughs> i can absolutely uh and how much i i you know if i hate goes error handling seven out of ten i hate pie spark like you know a good maybe and a half. there is no error handling <laughs> maybe we could do uh Maybe we could do an explain like I'm five or something because I'm like in this weird spot where I feel like I need to learn data science in order to be uh, like relevant in the field still, but I just have no desire like at all. I've got four or five barely started courses on Udemy (laughs) and other things. And I just like, for some reason, I always get to like, yeah, yeah. Okay. For some reason, it's like I get to the download the first data set (laughs) and I download it and I'm just like, nah, I'm just, I'm good. So the problem with data science as a field is that most of data science is bullshit data science. Um, Statistics. That is, <laughs> well, no, no yeah, right. So, uh, <laughs> like, the stat stuff is actually normally pretty good. It's the uh, actually we should probably push push the stop button. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, I think this is actually would be a good episode because I've, I've also gotten had to get really really intimate with how Spark works internally. So I think just talking about that, having a good explain like I'm five episode on big data and data science would be totally awesome. I mean, that'll be awesome. Yeah. So um, yeah, by bullshit data science, just super quick and kind of close the loop. The, uh, I, 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 it's all kind of just shitty marketing stuff. And it's like, how, how do we get better? You know, like most of the energy by the smartest data scientists in the world is trying to find out how to get a 2% increase in click-throughs and that just seems like such a fucking waste of energy like why bother uh these really advanced systems can only provide a very small increase in what was traditionally done uh like they they own they're only marginally better when you're talking about the you know improvement of performance from say 70 percent to say 73 like 
uh, but you're using maybe 50 times the amount of compute to get that extra 2%, like that's a shitty trade-off. And yet we are still prepared to pay that as an industry. And so yeah, I'd love to, I'd love to, <laughs> love to listen, uh, well, no, I'd say I'd love to speak about data science whenever you have me. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again. And uh, I promise not to edit you out of context. Nice. <laughs> hey, thanks, guys. Thank you.